Oh Lord God, we do praise you for you are great and mighty and a sovereign God and yet you are also a God of condescension and grace. Though you've created all things and sustain all things, you call us each by name and you number the very hairs of our head. So Lord, we come before you to offer you our praise and our thanksgiving, especially for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that in him we are clothed with righteousness that is not our own. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you will keep us safe until that great day when we shall gather before your throne and worship you for all eternity. Amen. Okay, uh, Patrick asked me if I'd do uh, the, the seminar this afternoon and I thought I'd speak on ministerial integrity. I think uh, for all of the... Uh, it seems to me to be a note that is, is not struck very often in discussion of ministry, certainly in the public forum. And yet, I think as we shall see, it's, uh, it's of significant importance for the Apostle Paul. And integrity, to sort of summarize it, I think, well, what is ministerial integrity? What is integrity in the church? Integrity involves an avoidance of worldliness. Uh, and what is worldliness? Worldliness is, well, my, my colleague Greg Beale, I've already cited once, he, I think he typically is quoting David Wells when he says this, but... Worldliness is anything that makes sin appear normal and righteousness appear strange. And if we look at the New Testament, we have some great examples of how worldliness has crept into the church. Uh, think of 1 Corinthians. There are really two major problems, it seems to me, in 1 Corinthians. On the one hand, there is the, the way that the model of the, the Greek orator has gripped the imagination of the Corinthian church as... Uh, epitomizing what a, a great leader should look like. It's not dissimilar to the cult we have today of the, the Hollywood star, or the good-looking, beautiful Hollywood star that grips the imagination and makes us think of the great and the good in particular terms. And the second problem at Corinth was the, the sexual obsessions of the wider culture. We might perhaps say that there are many parallels between Corinthian culture and culture today, and in the context of that, there was a need for leadership of integrity. Leadership that saw that for what it was, and was able to, to speak to it, and provide examples of, of what appropriate behavior and attitudes uh, should be. If we think of how uh, worldliness affected Corinth, I would also see that specifically, it seems, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that this worldliness has shaped how the Corinthians think of their leaders. Their leaders are to look like, or to be like great orators. It's why Paul makes the point that he's not very good looking. He's not particularly impressive as a public speaker, as they understood uh, impressive public speaking. The reason is that the whole of what they looked for in a leader was determined by the wider culture itself. And that's a problem. And I want to sort of talk through that uh, today. And I want to do so by looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 13. Let's read it together. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you were, knew that you were about to die, uh, it would, I'm sure, in the words of Thomas uh, Sir Samuel Johnson, uh, concentrate your mind wonderfully. The actual full quotation from Johnson is, depend upon it, sir, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Paul's pastoral letters, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, are the letters of a man who doesn't think he has very long for this world. And I, I think the great thing about the pastoral letters is they, they, they are written at a time of transition when Paul is aware that the, the leadership, the apostolic leadership of the ancient church is about to pass away. And we might say that we're moving from a period of extraordinary leadership, and I mean extraordinary as in these men were specifically appointed to fulfill a particular task, not that they were extraordinary leaders intrinsically. We're moving from a period of extraordinary leadership to a period of routine leadership. In other words, what Paul, I think, is doing in these letters is he's setting forth his model of what the church needs in place in order for uh, the faith, the gospel, to be preserved to future generations. Uh, I've used uh, this analogy a number of times, but uh, I, I, I subscribe to the British magazine, The Spectator. Some great writing uh, in, in, in The Spectator. And they carry, they used to carry at least, uh, a full-page advertisement each week for Patek Philippe watches. And they're beautiful watches. And I once said to my wife, you know, if you're thinking of something for me for Christmas... A Patek Philippe watch. That's how naive I was. So we went online to see how much a Patek Philippe watch costs. Entry-level Patek Philippe watch, $80,000. You know, my house is only worth about $120,000, $130,000 or something. They have a a, a nice byline for Patek Philippe watches, though. I can't afford one, but I can appreciate the byline. And the byline is you never really own a Patek Philippe. You merely look after it for the next generation. I know that was a great... When you, that's one of those things that certainly as a preacher, when you read it, that's a great preaching illustration or something there. So I must have used it a hundred times since. But it seems to me that the task of the church, as Paul envisages it, is looking after the gospel for the next generation. So what's going through Paul's mind at this point is, what do we need? What do we need to make sure that the gospel is preserved by this generation for the next generation. And in his pastoral letters, we see some classic Pauline notes being struck. We see him uh, criticizing false teaching. We see him criticizing excessive conformity to the world as the world exists outside the church. And we see also his vision 
for what the church should be organizationally to combat these things. And there are two sides to this, only one of which I'm going to talk about today. One half of it, the half I'm not going to talk about, I think, I think Paul lays the groundwork for creeds and confessions. I do think that good church polity requires creed or confession. The other side of it is, Paul sees it necessary that the church be organized and governed by a particular kind of person. And what I see Paul arguing for is the church being governed by ordinary trustworthy men. Uh, One of my elders gets upset or irritated when I call this way, but what Paul looks for is vanilla people to run the church. When you look at his the list of qualifications there, these are the kind of people that if they lived in your neighborhood, you probably wouldn't notice them because they're not going to be playing loud music at 4 a.m. in the morning or coming home drunk and throwing bricks through windows. They're going to be decent members of their community. Paul is looking for decent, ordinary men. Now, I've said it's a time of transition, uh, and Paul is, is writing to Timothy about the church in Ephesus. There's problematic uh, teaching there. We don't know the precise nature of the problematic teaching. We do know that it's somehow deviant on the law. Maybe if it's a little bit like the Colossians problem, it involves a, a sort of spiritual elitism relating to the law. Bottom line is, we don't need to know the details of, of why it was problematic. We simply need to know there was a doctrinal problem. In, in Ephesus. The other side of it is we know there's problematic behavior in Ephesus. One of those uh, passages that's so, such a nightmare to, uh, to preach on. Um, I'm just trying to look for it here. Where? Uh... Yes, preaching on First uh, uh, Timothy 2, uh, 8 and following. Uh, always a risky proposition. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. That's fine. <coughs> Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. I believe you me, when you preach that, you prepare and it's fine. And as soon as you get to that point in the verse and you're preaching on it, you look out and it seems like every woman in the congregation has braided hair or pearl earrings. Uh, or is wearing nice, costly attire. What is Paul going on about there? I don't think Paul is... I, I actually don't think Paul is saying that it's sinful to wear pearl earrings. I think what Paul is talking about there is the dress code of the new Roman woman. In first century Corinth, there were these women, the, new Ro- the emergence of the new Roman woman in the first century. Liberated, we might say sort of kind of feminist in real attitude, sexually promiscuous. And the way they, they advertised who they were was they dressed just like this. This was the dress code. You know, like goths dress in black, new Roman women, pearl earrings, braided hair. So I don't think that, uh, that if you're going to preach on this in the near future, you have to worry too much about women with pearl earrings in your congregation because they're not advertising themselves as new Roman women. Paul is essentially saying, you know, a modern-day equivalent, you know, don't come to church dressed like a prostitute. But really bluntly. But what we know from that is clearly somebody's doing this. Paul is only arguing against this because it must be going on. So we can say that in Ephesus we have deviation on the law and we also have deviation in behavior. Those are the hardy perennials of church life. Every pastoral problem is going to fall into one of those two categories. It's either going to be somebody teaching something or believing something false or somebody behaving in a way they shouldn't behave. Or, as is often the case, 
doing both. There's usually a connection uh, between the two, but all will fall into those two categories. They're hardy perennials of church life. False or deviant teaching, intrusion of inappropriate worldly behavior driven by conformity to the world outside. We need to understand the depth of the problem, and for that, I think, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says this, verses 1 to 4, 1 to 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Our instinct at that point is to think, well, yeah, that's New York, or that's Las Vegas, or that's Los Angeles, or that's the streets of Philadelphia. Uh, that's what people like there are out, there are like. Uh, now that, you know, the church isn't as dominant as it once was. The problem with that, of course, is verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. What Paul is saying there, I think he's actually talking about the church. The primary area for the struggle of the church is always going to be the church itself. It makes perfect sense when you think about it because the church is going to be the primary focus of attack for those who wish to see her work destroyed. And subversion from within is always much more effective than attack from without. History demonstrates that attacks from without often don't lead to the annihilation of the church. Sometimes they do. There are parts of the world where the church seems to have been wiped off the face of the map. But often, persecution from the outside actually intensifies devotion and commitment. So it makes sense, you know, if you, if you had a satanic plan to destroy the church, you'd really want to do it from the inside. So while the, the Roman emperor in 361, a man called Julian the Apostate, decides to destroy the church by bringing back the troublemaking bishops from exile and putting them back in their bishoprics. And in so doing, he brings a man called Athanasius back from exile and pretty much seals the deal for the Council of Constantinople in 381. Ironically, he strengthens the church, doesn't destroy it. But his logic makes sense. Get the troublemakers on the inside. And remember, of course, the church herself is composed of, of, of whom? It's composed of those who themselves engaged in dramatic internal struggles. Each one of us is engaged in our own deadly combat against our own old nature. It's surely inevitable that when we're all gathered together, that's going to manifest itself in a more corporate and dramatic way. So I think what Paul is saying here in uh, 2 Timothy is, primary uh, area of the church's struggle is going to be the church itself. And what does he do in that context? calls for the appointment of church officers, overseers and deacons. That point I've just made is important because some people look at the pastoral epistles and say the appointment of elders and deacons is a temporary thing. There are specific issues relating to Ephesus that Paul needs dealt with and you've just got to put a few guys in charge to kind of clear house there. I don't think so. I agree. My colleague Greg Beale likes, he talks about elders as the, he calls them I think the stormtroopers of the end times. It's a sort of that, you know, in Tim LaHaye world, that would call up all kinds of images. But what, what Greg means is, we're living in the end times. 
the church is the primary focus of the context of, of the of conflict in the end times. And for as long as these last times last, we need elders and deacons leading the church and guiding the church. So Paul's solution to this struggle is very simple. Overseers and deacons. Paul sees clearly the need for a delegation of authority and a hierarchy in the church, not a priestly hierarchy. It's not that these men stand between the church and God such as they act as mediators in any priestly way, but they're a hierarchy designed to protect the church from internal enemies. Notice that Paul's answers the problem is a churchly one. He doesn't say you need management consultants to come in and sort this out. Nothing irritates me more than when you read about churches bringing in teams of external consultants to sort their problems out. It means they've got problems way beyond anything that a management consultant can sort out. It's a churchly thing. You've got to find men within the church's own ranks. Nor does he want free-floating Christian leaders. I think he wants men tied to the local, in the local context, who know the people, who know the troublemakers, who know the problem and can therefore handle the problems effectively. And what do these people look like? Well, I want you to notice that these people primarily look like men of character. And that immediately at the start, I think, means that Paul is probably, by and large, thinking of older men. I can prove that from the text, but even, uh, even in advance I'm prepared for that. What's the most incomprehensible verse in the Bible? Most incomprehensible verse in the Bible today? Such that Paul would not even have to write it today. You could actually rip it out of your Bible that it would make no difference. 1 Timothy 4.12 Let no man despise you because of your youth. It's virtually impossible to imagine anybody being despised because of their youth today. One of the most worldly aspects of the world around us is the exaltation of youth. Uh, I think it's rooted in, technically I think it's rooted in a Pelagianism that sees age as corrupting, that as one gets older, one gets more corrupt. Uh, I think it is also uh, rooted in consumerism because youth sells. Nobody goes, unless you're on the run and on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, you're unlikely to go to a plastic surgeon and ask him to make you look older. I think that generally doesn't happen. You don't buy clothes that make you look older. My wife doesn't criticize me for wearing clothes because they make me look too young. She'll say, oh man, those clothes, they make you look older than you really are. We live in a world where youth is exalted. And I think one of the biggest problems in the church today is, is the cult of youth, even as it connects to leadership. Um, just as an aside, it's been very interesting to me how Mark Driscoll continues to refer to himself as a young man. Uh, first of all, that's not necessarily a great qualification for a leader if you think of yourself as a young man. But secondly, it strikes me as bizarre that a man in his mid-40s would continue to call himself a young man. That's a, a clinging to youth in a weird, 
in the most unbiblical way, I think. But anyway, Mark Driscoll is my favorite topics to rant about. We'll move, we'll move on. <laughs> what do we know? I think we need to note four things about the men that Paul once put in. This is what ministerial integrity looks like. These are men are to be moderate in temperament. Why should they be moderate in temperament? That's vital to avoid church splits. A man needs to know that not every hill is worth dying on and not every issue raised is the Reformation all over again. I came, I served on two sessions before I became pastor at Cornerstone, but in some ways I regard even more significant than serving on sessions was being uh, vice president at Westminster when I had to manage people and I couldn't fight every battle and I had to make critical decisions about how to get the best out of people and which battles really needed to be fought and which battles, frankly, I had to accept that I was going to lose. I could win them if I fought them, but it would distract me from other things. Uh, moderate temperament, I think, is something that is developed over, over time. Uh, you get moderate temperament as, well, many as, as they get older. Uh, personal integrity. Not greedy, trustworthy with money. It's fascinating that in the uh, pastoral epistles, Paul latches on to the household idea. The connection between how a man manages his household and how he manages the church. I think that's key to understanding how he understands certain things. Um, when he emphasizes gentleness, if you're a good manager of a household, you know that, that gentleness does not mean spinelessness. There can be a tendency uh, to be spineless. But spineless, of course, what does that mean? It simply means bullies prosper and innocent people have to take it on the chin and, and like it or lump it. But a manager, man, man who manages his own household well well, inevitably, he'll have to have stood up to his own children at some point or other members of his family. Uh, he'll have had to take the lead. He'll have had to have made difficult decisions. He'll have had to shoulder responsibility. Exactly the same kind of things that are needed in good church leadership. And I, would add, I don't know if it's the same in, in Baptist circles, but one of the things that struck, always struck me as odd in Presbyterian circles is we will regularly think of calling a guy in his 20s with an MDiv to be a pastor. But you try and call a guy in his 20s to be a ruling elder and you'll get huge pushback. And it's odd when you think about it that we're prepared to allow the man with the most influence in the church, the guy who controls the pulpit, to be a guy of 27, 28 because he's got the technical skills that an MDiv has provided him with. But you bring a guy in his mid-30s to being a ruling elder and you'll still get people saying, well, he seems very young to me. Not sure that he's got the experience for it. Um, I ran up against this at my own church just last year when I brought two guys forward and I got the, well, he's very young. And then I pointed out, well, actually, these two guys are the same age as a couple of other pastors in the area that you regularly have to preach here. And then it all went silent and we got the vote through. But it struck me as an interesting reaction. It's always good to anticipate the question and, uh, and have your answer already prepared. But, uh, but management of their own household... It don't, I don't think Paul means you have to be married and have to have children. I think when Paul said husband and one wife, he means you've got to be married. I think if he means if you are married, you should be faithful to your one wife. You shouldn't have a girlfriend down the street. Uh, you shouldn't have two wives. I didn't tell you the story when Luther uh, told a man to take two wives, did I? Can I throw that in, even though it's not entirely a... Philip of Hesse uh, was uh, an odd man. <coughs> But he was having all kinds of trouble with his wife. And he went to Luther 
he fell in love with a much younger lady. And he went to Luther and asked if he could divorce his wife and marry the younger lady. And Luther said, absolutely not. But he said, what you could do is you could just, you know, marry a second wife, but keep quiet about it. So Philip of Hesse marries a second wife. Uh, and of course, you know, three men can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Word leaks out. And this becomes one of the big scandals of Luther's later career, that he sanctioned bigamy. Um, it's quite, quite remarkable. Uh, but anyway, <coughs> we'll come on to that. Uh, the, the minister should have a solid grasp of the gospel. He needs to be familiar with the word. He needs to be familiar with the doctrinal position of the church. Notice in Romans 16, Paul talks about those who have uh, departed from the teaching as being divisive. So part of not being a divisive man is holding to the confession of the church. That involves having a solid grasp of the gospel. Um, they must, you must not be new converts. Too much too soon can prove too great a temptation. And of course, we need to remember that the fall of a leader of a church is always more catastrophic than the fall of a church member, as bad as that can be. The Catholic Church would be a priest abuse scandal is so catastrophic because it involves men who are put in positions of leadership and responsibility. Now, regardless of what you think of the Catholic Church, the wider world doesn't make that great a distinction between us and them. They look at priests, they're God's representatives here. Uh, when they're abusing children, then that is catastrophic for the church. In a way that if an individual member were to do that, it would be terrible for the church, but it wouldn't be quite the public scandal uh, that it is. So it's important that uh, the person is not a, a new convert. He should be tried and tested. Uh, the whole, you know, when Ted Haggard falls, you know, guys like me will look on at Ted Haggard and will say, well, we've nothing to do with us. But unfortunately, the outside world associates all Christians with guys uh, like that. And then they must have a good reputation with those outside. And that, I think, is, is a very important aspect of ministerial integrity. It's part of the evangelistic witness, is it not, of the church. We're to be different. But outsiders should be able to see that we take our testimony seriously. I was giving the anecdote earlier of my church... Uh, once a year we do a reading. We, I'm reading my way through the Narnia books in a local park in, in the summer. We just The church just sets up outside. I read a Narnia book. I got the accent for it. You know, it's, uh, they make me do it. And they all kind of... The, the, we, get, we get 150, 200 people sometimes in the community. Kids, older people come and, and sit and listen. And a couple that have been, have been to virtually every night we've done it over the three years we've done it... Uh, Two guys who are, who are a gay couple. I think they're married now. Uh, and they've come every night. And when it's been rained off and we've had to do it in the church, they'll come to the church. And people in the church welcome them. They don't treat them as gay people. They just treat them as they treat any other visitor to the church. They're friendly. They're happy. They've been to the church uh, on a Sunday uh, once or twice. Um, and it seems to me that whatever else they think of us and our theology, they know we don't hate them. If I could put it that way. You know, if I were to sit down and tell them about my theology, they'd probably be horrified. They'd probably think I was a lunatic. But they know we don't hate them. We have a good reputation with them. Yeah, we're those, they believe some crazy stuff. But they welcomed us into their church. They were nice people when we went there. They do good stuff for the community. I think that being of, of good reputation with those outside is 
It's part of the evangelistic witness of the church. And I think your elders need to take the lead in that. And if your elders don't have good reputations in their own neighborhoods, if they're not good neighbors, then that's going to be a real black mark against, against the church. Um, husband and one wife. And I've said it, do, it doesn't mean that the unmarried cannot hold office. It's not clear to me that Paul himself was married. History's been full of significant ministers who remained unmarried. Augustine. Augustine had a fairly interesting early life, but after his conversion, he remained celibate and unmarried. <coughs> Charles Simeon. John Stott. What Paul, I think, is saying here is that the elder should not have multiple wives. We shouldn't have one wife here and a, and a couple of girlfriends on the side. He shouldn't be seen going out with other women. I'm very careful. Uh, there's a young girl in, in our congregation that my wife and I have sort of taken under our wing uh, almost as a kind of, we, we joking refer to her as our adopted daughter. But I'm very careful that I never send her an email that my wife's not copied on. Uh, I, would never be, I would never get her to drive me anywhere without my wife being, being with us or with other members of the church being with us. I think Paul here is laying out a principle that today we need to be very careful that we, we not only avoid... Uh, unrighteousness. We need to avoid all appearance of unrighteousness. And I know that can be tough sometimes. I have a job where sometimes I had to meet with female employees on their own. It's just the nature of the job I had. It's impossible to avoid sometimes. But I think we need to be very careful as, as elders and ministers that we do not even appear to be in situations that could be misinterpreted by, by those outside and indeed by those inside. Um, so in short, we could summarize this by saying that the officers of the church are to model in their life and doctrine that to which all Christians should aspire. People talk about the high standard Paul sets up for elders here. I'm not sure it is that high a standard. I mean, it is a high standard, but I'm not sure it's that unattainable a standard. I think what Paul is saying is that elders should embody in their life a life of Christian integrity. Does it mean that you know, I never snap at my wife? Well, sadly I do, and she'll snap at me. Uh, do we have a marriage that is perfect? No. But do we have a marriage that, is, that has integrity and where we're happy and when we're uh, thus far being loyal and faithful to each other? Ab absolutely. I don't think that that's uh, setting the bar too high. Um, for an elder not to be quick-tempered, that's not setting the bar too high. I would also add, I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's good that why uh, churches have multiple elders. Paul's talking here in a plural context. I think that elders can help each other to be the men that are described here. Had a situation recently, been going through an issue in my church discipline case, which, well, I've been right in the center of it. And uh, I have an elder, he's much younger, he's 13 years younger than me, he's a former student. He still has difficulty calling me Carl, not Dr. Truman. Uh, he's an elder now. And uh, he texted me at 11 o'clock one night and said, uh, can I speak to you on the phone? So I, so I called him straight away. And he called me and he said, I'm calling you to tell you, I think when we come to discuss this discipline case at session tomorrow, you need to leave the room because you're going to sin by losing your temper. And we had a blazing row on the phone there and then. And at the end of it, he said, he said well, if you won't leave the room, he said, I'm going to bring a motion. And I'm going to get the others to vote you out of the room at that point because you're going to sin. And at that point, I said, you know, you're right. I need to leave the room at that point. And it struck me then that, yeah, to be self-controlled, to be not quick-tempered, sometimes you do that as a team. Sometimes the, one of the great things is being part of an elder team where if you're surrounded by men of integrity, 
then when you start to lose integrity at a certain point, you've got a guy who can pull you back into line. I know why he phoned me at 11 o'clock at night, because it took him all day to pluck up courage to do it. Because <laughs> he knew I was going to bite his head off. And he knows that I'm his former prof. And he, everything, you know, he's been trained to look up to me, not by me, but just by the relationship we've had of professor and student. That's how it goes. I still look up to my doctoral supervisor. Struggle to call him by his first name. Uh, so being part of a team of elders is good. Notice, the, though, you go back to a point I made earlier, and I want to draw something out uh, of significance of this before, we, before I sort of throw it open for, for discussion and questions. Notice that most of these are character traits. It's got to be a t the elder has to be able to teach, but everything else here is a character trait. These are not technical competencies. You're not the husband of one wife by reading a book about it. There are books about it, but to be honest, they won't help you be a husband of one wife. Uh, you're not going to not be quick-tempered by reading a book about it. These are things that have to be learned through experience over time. They're not technical competencies. They're character issues. And I think we can infer a number of things about this. We can infer, first of all, that the problems in Ephesus, these local problems, which I think we can generalize out to the whole church because of the passage in 2 Timothy, the problems in Ephesus are not ultimately technical in nature. If the problems in Ephesus were technical in nature, Paul would propose a technical solution. If my plumbing is leaking at home, if a pipe bursts, I don't call a godly elder to fix it for me. I call a plumber. I don't need godliness. I need a guy with the right tools and a piece of pipe who can fix it. You know, I'm, my tires on my car are being changed uh, this week. I don't ask the, my, my mechanic, I don't say, you know, can you subscribe to the Westminster Standards? You know, do you pray every day with your wife? Do you know what tires I need? Can you fit them for me on Wednesday? Great, you got the job. Those are technical problems. Paul doesn't speak much. Yeah, clearly there's false teaching. These people need to be able to teach. They need to have a good grasp of the gospel. But most of this stuff is character issues. Paul emphasizes, if you like, the problem, the solution to the problem of false teaching and inappropriate behavior is to put men of the right character in positions of authority. And that implies to me that false teaching and inappropriate behavior are ultimately moral problems. I think even the existence of elders indicates that, the qualification of elders indicates that false teaching is ultimately a moral problem. Secondly, I think it reminds us that character is crucial to competence within the church. We routinely separate these two in the wider culture. Uh, we are all aware, of course, that technical competence does not require admirable character. From Wagner and Chopin to rock music, uh, the world of arts and entertainment indicates that people are quite capable of producing great <coughs> art or things of beauty who are not very beautiful themselves. Their character doesn't necessarily stop them from producing great work. Remember, if you've ever seen the film Amadeus, it's about 30 years old now, but it's a great movie, and you have to feel sorry for Salieri, the, 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 the court composer, when he meets Mozart, and he just cannot get over the fact that the, there's this trivial idiot who writes this beautiful stuff. And, you know, Salieri is a substantial man of serious character. 
and he's doomed to know that his stuff is so mediocre compared to what this flippant, superficial idiot is just churning out. I know the true story is more complicated than that, but it makes a great movie. It makes for a great movie. Uh, it's increasingly true in the world of politics. I remember reading in a British newspaper some time ago saying, you know, it's 50 years since such so-and-so resigned from office, and this person was the last British minister, cabinet minister, to resign because one of his civil servants was incompetent. Now you, you fight hard not to resign if you're incompetent yourself. Uh, we now routinely uh, uh, allow politicians to do all manner of things in their private life that we see as having no impact on their public status. Remember my dad, my dad was not a Christian, but my dad would always say to me when I was a child, he said, you know, if a, if a man's wife can't trust him, nobody can. If a man's wife can't trust him, nobody can. That's pointless saying that now. That's regarded as, as meaningless. I think we're almost at a point now where culture has almost reversed the situation where competence has become character. Because somebody's good at their job or paints a beautiful picture or writes a beautiful poem, we assume that whatever character flaws they have must be okay too. A couple of years ago, I was preaching on the Sunday when the Oscars were taking place, and I said to the congregation, you know, tonight, if, if any of you are watching the Oscars, and I'm, I, I can't stand watching that, that stuff, I said, when you see the pictures of all the beautiful people on the red carpet, just think to yourselves how many broken marriages they represent, how many abortions they represent, how many tantrums on stage do they represent? How much real ugliness is hidden below that beauty? And how little any of that counts because they're beautiful people who make nice films. Think of Michael Jackson. Uh, I was amused, I went reading in the accounts of Michael Jackson's funeral where somebody said, you know, you're in a... It's pretty grim when somebody has to use the phrase everybody is innocent until proven guilty at your memorial service. You know, you don't want that phrase used at your memorial service. It says something pretty dramatic about how you've lived your life. But you know, Michael Jackson, what was he? He, he, could, I'd say, he could walk backwards with a certain amount of grace. And yet he was forgiven all manner of stuff in the public eye because he was a half-decent dancer. My own prejudice come out here. Gene Kelly was a dancer. Michael Jackson was a poser, you know. Gene <laughs> Kelly was a true dancer. But, but you get, you, you, you see the picture. Because he was good at his job, we pardon him anything. Roman Polanski, you know, raped uh, a young girl, and we had, uh, of all people, Whoopi Goldberg saying, well, it, was, it wasn't really rape. I'm sorry, if it's with a minor, it's rape. Even if the minor consents, which he didn't in this case, it's rape. Imagine if a Republican politician said that. It would be the end of his career. But Polanski can get away with this uh, because he makes great movies, and he's made some great movies. Tess is a wonderful, wonderful movie. Steve Jobs, messianic figure in death, but ruthless businessman. I'm amazed that I got an apple because the seminary gave it to me. Um, <laughs> I have to say, I quite like it. I qualified this year for my first new computer from the seminary ever, having been there for 13 years. They gave me an apple. It is a great machine. When I registered it, I went to fill in my birth date. And it only goes back to 1990. And then it's just before 1990. <laughs> so I took that as meaning, you know, if you're older than 24, 
you have no right to own this machine, or, or we don't care what you think about this machine anyway. But Apple, was there ever a bigger commercial contract in history than the Apple Corps? They built in, build in obsolescence. And then they sell you a new, very expensive replacement, and they make you think that they've done you a favor. That's amazing. If you can pull that off, you're made. And they'll even just tweak certain little things, like they'll change the, the plug. So that you know, you've even got to buy a new plug sometime. It's the most incredible commercial contract in history. And yet Job's was somehow this messianic, altruistic figure. Uh, it's amazing that all the people that he essentially did in by exploiting thought he was so wonderful. Incredible. If I could do it and get away with it, trust me, I'd be doing it. Um, but Paul, Paul points in the opposite direction. And this is where I think it's hard for the church today. You know, we're in, we're in like a Corinthian moment in the church where so much of what is pressed in on church leadership is really worldly models. I'm even, even concerned. A couple of years ago, I was speaking at Southern Baptist Seminary, and I was giving some lectures, and I've got a section in this lecture where I was going to fulminate against having leadership as a separate category in our discussions. And I went to the bookstore before, uh, before I, I did the gave the lecture, and I noticed they were doing this massive promotion on the forthcoming book on leadership from Professor Al Mohler. And I thought, well, as he's invited me here, and he's a very powerful person, I'd better scrap that particular paragraph uh, <laughs> in, in my lecture. But we've become very dazzled by worldly models of leadership and what qualifies us to be a leader. And I think it's because we've become dazzled by ambitions of influence and wanting to be big shots. Paul, for all of the books out there written on Christian leadership, Paul seems to think the canon is quite adequately filled on the issue of leadership with the three brief pastoral epistles he puts together. So, what am I going to, how would I conclude ministerial integrity? Well, it's a matter of character. I would say three things, four things we need to, need to apply uh, in, this, in this way to the church today. I think, first of all, when we're electing elders and deacons, the criteria we need to use are Paul's criteria. They need to be that which focuses our mind, not the person, whether they're a big name, not whether they have the fancy job, not whether they give a lot of money to the church. The only criteria we should be using are the criteria that Paul lays out in the pastoral epistles. Um, secondly, I think we need to remember that the public reputation of the church is important and hinges, by and large, on the reputation of the elders. And that's why it's important that the elders are held to a higher standard than other members of the congregation. And I think it's one of the things that the elders need to do more of is they need to police themselves. Elders' integrity is a, a corporate thing. And the elders need to hold themselves accountable to each other in the way they run the church. Third point, <clears throat> that leads me to I'm a big believer in the plurality of elders. I know that in some churches there are, you know, it's harder to get elders than others, but I think uh, having four, five, six, seven, eight elders, that's good because it provides a, a corporate body that is able to, to keep itself on, on, the, on the straight and narrow. And I remember a, a year or two ago, I was chatting to a friend over in the UK saying, I need a couple of elders, I need two more elders of my church. 
but there's nobody who's qualified to be an elder in the congregation at this point. What do I do? And he looked me in the eye and he said, you train them. Find people that you think might be able to qualify and work on them. Bring them up. Train them up to make them into potential elder material. And that's kind of what we did. Uh, and then finally, I think, don't overestimate the standard for the elders. Um, there's a tendency to look at those and think, who's sufficient for these things? But I think when you actually look at them, Paul is not demanding perfection. He's demanding integrity. And I think there's a difference between, between the two. The one is definitely attainable. In dependence upon the Spirit, of course, but the one is, is definitely attainable. The other is unattainable. Um, and I say, just as a, as a final sort of semi-rant, it's what worries me about the, the whole Young, Restless, and Reform movement. Um, what, what worried me about it more than anything else was the young aspect. It's great to have young people reading this stuff and buying stuff. That's fantastic. It's not so great to pass the leadership and influence in the movement to young people because it's a very unpaulline move. Uh, and to allow, particularly in an era of blogs and internet and everything, it's very easy to allow too much ha power into the hands of men who are simply not old enough and mature enough to handle it wisely. So, I guess, quarter and a half for questions? Yep. No questions. Yeah? Any practical advice on how to uh, talk about the need to respect older people without sounding Self-promoting as an <laughs> 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 Hey, I'm not bothered about self-promoting occasionally on, on issues like that. No. Um, uh, this is where I think it's, it's useful. I, uh, this is not so much advice, more, almost as an op, more, more of an observation. This is where I think it's useful that the church reflects all generations. There are many advantages to having the church being full of young, old, middle-aged people. But one of the good things, I think, about having a church where uh, there are older people is it allows younger people to engage with them and learn to respect them in that kind of context. I think we live in a very anti-hierarchical and pro-youth age, which makes it difficult. So it does need to be preached on. I think it does need to be preached on and taught. Um, I think, uh, but I do think there are two sides to the coin in that Paul, when Paul goes through his addresses, he gives uh, instructions for the church. You know, old people are to behave in a certain way. The young people are to respect them, but old people are also to behave in a certain way. So I think maybe, maybe a way of teaching on it is to make sure that when you do teach on it, it's not just to bash the young people for not respecting the old people, but pressing home on the old people the need to care for and show an interest in the younger people and, and do it like that. Paul always seems to me when he does his things at the end, he, he nicely balances, he sort of hits everybody so that nobody could say, well, he was on a rant about X at this point in time. He talks about young and old, widows, married, young widows, old widows. So maybe that's the approach. Well, I, I give you the, the, the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church position, is that the deacons are, it's not a teaching position, but it's, it, it's still, we would still, we would regard it as something of a leadership position. We would regard it as a position having its own integrity. In other words, it's not a training ground for the eldership. We're very clear. 
We appoint you as a deacon and you never get appointed as an elder. It's not because you failed as a deacon. Uh, so we're very, very, try to be very careful to, to honor the deacons and, and make it clear that they have an integrity. We, in the OPC, the deacons are responsible for the material needs of the church. And if one can make a distinction between spiritual and material, the elders deal with the spiritual, the deacons deal with the material. Now, I know that that's not, you know, if somebody's struggling to make their mortgage, that will have spiritual implications as well. So we work pretty closely together on, on pastoral issues. But by and large, if we get a call to the church, somebody's having trouble paying a bill, somebody's house is flooded, uh, somebody needs meals provided because they've been in hospital, those kind of things fall to the deacons. So we're sort of taking our cue a bit from the book of Acts, and the deacons are, de- you know, they're not waiting at tables, but it's the sort of modern equivalent of that that allows the elders to deal specifically with teaching, discipling, and discipline uh, issues. But as I say, there's often an overlap, as you know, between the, the spiritual and the material, so you have to coordinate your efforts on things. Again, I, I, as valuable to me as having a plurality of elders, having deacons is so too, because you know, most of the calls that come to the church are material issues. And it's great to be able to pass them to somebody else so that I can focus on, on, on the elder stuff. I think the the big question in the church is you have to make sure that whatever the church does, it is not making somebody who is a true faithful believer feel uncomfortable or disenfranchised. So, for example, um, one thing that, that I would not have, and, and this is not to say it's sinful to have this, but... I would never have the American flag at the front of my church. I'm not an American, but that wouldn't be the reason why I would object to having the American flag. It's American. Americans entitled to put the flag wherever they want. The reason why I would advise not to have it would be the same reason that I would not want a Union Jack in my church if I was back in the UK. In that, if you start to identify the gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day with a particular nation, then if you don't belong to that nation, you'll feel disenfranchised somewhat. Now, there are certain issues that I think all Christians should be agreed on. Abortion is wrong. How you get at changing the abortion laws, Christians can disagree over that. Uh, someone to you know, chain themselves outside an abortion clinic and pick it. Someone to lobby their politicians. There are all kinds of different ways. So I wouldn't, you know, in terms of political engagement, I'd preach that abortion's wrong. But I'm not going to preach that unless you're chaining yourself to the railings outside an abortion clinic, you're failing as a Christian in the public square. I wouldn't preach that. So I think the important thing for the church is that the church, you preach the text and apply it in a way that doesn't exclude Christians from feeling at home in the church. Uh, I don't know enough about the detail. I I read about it many, many years ago, the details of Bonhoeffer's uh, engagement with uh, Hitler, 
it's clearly a, a very serious decision to take to be involved in what is effectively an assassination plot against, you know, a legitimate, I hate to call Hitler a legitimate head of state, but that's what he was at the time. He was the ruler of Germany. Um, that's a very serious decision, and I can't comment on Bonhoeffer's logic because I cannot remember what it was. Uh, but you know, for us as a church engaging socially, I, I trust that the character formation that takes place each Sunday as people in my church sit under the preaching of the word shapes how they think about their behavior in the civic sphere. I trust that that means that perish the thought if a girl in my congregation who wasn't married uh, got uh, pregnant, or perish the thought if one of the ladies in my congregation was raped and became pregnant as a result of that rape. I hope that all that had been taught in the church over the years would mean that whatever else they would do, they wouldn't have an abortion. And I hope that the rest of the church would support them in that decision. So I hope that uh, preaching makes a difference to how we think about public civic issues. I'm just very wary. I don't think the church should be involved in party politics because that drives out the people who don't belong to your party but who may well belong to Christ from the church. Do you have an American flag at the front here? Okay. So I haven't offended anybody who's here. Okay. So, uh, By conviction, we don't. Okay. Uh, I don't notice it these days, so I don't feel disenfranchised, actually, when I go into churches. That, that, uh, that. In the OPC, is there a universal process? Yeah, we have to follow the, the book of church order. I can't remember all of the, you know, it's a fairly detailed process. Essentially, the, uh, the congregation are allowed to nominate. Um, but the elders have to bring the names. So the, the congregation can nominate, but if the, co- if the congregation nominates an inappropriate person, the elders don't have to bring them before the congregation for appointment. Um, but the congregation have to elect the elders. There has to be a congregational election of elders. And they have to subscribe to uh, various vows. They have to agree to uphold the teaching of the Westminster Standards, for example. Um, but there is some variation in the OPC. Some churches have term eldership. So you're appointed an elder for a fixed term and then you have to stand down. I don't agree with that. I think that I don't see that in Scripture. I chatted to the practical theology prof at Westminster, Tim Whitmer, and I asked him about it. And he said, it's not biblical, but it does have one advantage. And I said, what's that? And he said, you can get rid of the troublesome elder when he comes to the end of his term and make sure he never gets back in. He said, but that's not a sufficient reason for doing it because it's unbiblical. Said, but uh, but uh, that's not an OPC, typical OPC practice, but is allowed. Yeah, the back. Yeah, uh, David Dixon's The Elder. Uh, I think, I love, there are some amazing pastoral manuals, even from the ancient church. Uh, John Chrysostom, On the Priesthood. Um, Gregory the Great also wrote a similar thing. Uh, Richard Baxter's Reformed Pastor. It's terrifying because he's so sort of brutal in its standards. Um, there's an excellent book written by it's actually written by quite a liberal Presbyterian, but there's a book called Pastoral Care in the Classical Tradition, written by a guy called Andrew Purvis. I get my interns to read that. 
And it's just a study of five or six great books of classical pastoral care, drawing lessons out for the present day. Purvis despises the therapeutic model of eldership. And it's a, it's a great book. Uh, all of the interns that I've got to read it have loved it. He's, yeah, he's pro-women's ordination, so the stuff that jars with me and the guys I give it to, but it's a very, very good book. Uh, and I also think on, on, on the church, James Bannerman's Body of Christ <coughs> is excellent. Banner of Truth, about to republish it in a nice hardback edition. So James Bannerman, Church of Christ. It's a Presbyterian book, but there's enough in there for Congregational Baptists to agree with that they'll... If you can cope with his insulting of your points, there's a lot in there about how the church should, should operate. And then I think the stuff that uh, Capitol Hill Baptists produce through their Nine Marks ministry, Mark Dever, those little hardback books that Mark Dever pops out, I think through Crossway, I think they're excellent. Obviously, as a Presbyterian, I have to, you know, doesn't quite work. Not everything he says quite works in my context. But if you're a congregationist, I think they're great books. <clears throat> No, I, I don't think it's a, it's a link that is so hard and fast that if one's there, the other's, the other's there. Because I think you could not meet those qualifications and still not be a particularly immoral person. I mean, obviously, husband or one wife, that's a big one. Um, but I know some good people who've been hopeless home ma- managers of their households. Uh, so I think that it's not, there's not a necessary connection between not making all of those qualifications and, and false false teaching. My own experience when I've come across guys who've gone seriously deviant theologically, and I'm not talking about disagreement over the subject and mode of baptism or something like this, I'm thinking about more serious theological deviation. There's almost always a moral issue there somewhere, problem with, even if it's as basic as just a basic problem with any authority. But, um, you know, I can think of friends I had, and you know, you find out, again, not a necessary connection, yeah, their theology started to drift, and then you find out they've been committing adultery or fornicating or something. And there's often a connection. We're often, a, you know, human beings are complicated, and we're often will try to justify behavior we want to engage in by altering what we believe to provide a rationale for it. Classic example, I think, is what's going on with the same sex marriage thing in, in evangelical circles at the moment. I noticed this week just a an evangelical ethicist, David Gushy, or Gushy, or somebody who's come out in favor of LGBT stuff. And, you know, I don't know who he is, but possibly there's a desire there to continue being respected in certain quarters. It might be as, as simple as that. Uh, I think there's often a moral component to serious theological deviation. Yeah. Our deacons use, um, they get hold of stuff like Tim Keller's Ministries of Mercy. We don't agree with everything in the book, but they'll get hold of some practical books to show the different kind of models that exist out there. With elders, it's been a lot easier. My, the two elders we appointed last year were Westminster M. Divgrat. So that meant the theological stuff was not a problem. 
But we, we just sat and talked to them about the responsibility of eldership, what it would mean in terms of uh, uh, pastoral commitments, those kind of things, and made sure that they were up together on that kind of thing. But I could envisage a situation where, you know, I'm not in, in ordaining a Westminster MDiv as an elder. There I'd want to, to work through, certainly want them to read the Confession and the Catechisms, and we'd probably do some sort of theological work together as well relating to that to make sure they understood. So, for example, I mean, you, many of you won't sympathize with this, but so, for example, if we have an infant baptism at church and a visitor wanders up to an elder, sees the elders, wanders up to an elder and says, why do you baptize infants? He's able to give a, a rationale for that. <laughs> well, I'd say, obviously, read the Bible would be the first thing, and uh, that's basic. And, uh, uh, and uh, yeah. I like to put... I like to pull Mark Dever's leg by the sort of saying, you know, okay, take out of theological history all of the contributions that Peter Baptists have made. And what are you left with? You know, was, uh, I'll concede some great preachers, but what would they have to preach on? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No. Do you have any historic um, rationale for why that happened? I think the, the way, of, way of life has changed. And of course, Ryle operated on a parish system, as did Baxter, where the parish minister had the right to bang on anybody's door and visit them. It's more complicated now because, you know, I don't have a parish. Patrick doesn't have a parish. You know, people come from all over to our churches. Um, I also think that people's expectations have changed, that people don't expect to be visited by the minister in a way that they, they used to be. Um, as far as pastoral oversight. Yeah. How far might we say that? I, I'd come at that question from a different angle. I think that the size of church is important here. And for me, a lot of pastoral oversight is connecting with people on a Sunday, being aware of people on a Sunday. Getting, them, getting to know them so they feel comfortable about calling me if there's an issue. Keeping an eye open if they're not there. You know, and I, even, even knowing people so that you can judge the body language. I remember sitting in church with my wife and a young couple we were friends with came in, and I glanced across, and I said to my wife after the service, I said, body language is, is wrong. You've got to call his wife. The body language was wrong. I, I don't know how, but I, just, I knew them, and I could tell. My wife called, and sure enough, there was real tension in the marriage at that point that we were able to handle. So I think a lot of pastoral care these days comes down to knowing people. And the other, that was parish visitation. Now there are other ways. We have the telephone. We have internet. We have other ways of doing that. It makes me very... I would, I would not want a pastor in a big church because I like to know people. I like, not that I want to interfere in their lives, but I like to know them such that if they're not in church two weeks in a row, I can give them a call and say, notice you're not being in church. Anything wrong? Anything I can do? Uh, well, again, one can't, how long is a piece of string? Yeah, well, it depends, on, it depends on the elders you've got and how many elders you've got. I, I think probably, I'm, our church is about 160, 170 now, and we're at the point where I'm beginning to think I'm starting not 
to get to know everybody. So I'm guessing probably around about the 200 mark would be, for me, the point when things are starting to, to drift a bit. But then I could see compensating that by having very good, competent, proactive elders. I don't see that it's necessary for me to know everybody, but it's necessary for some elder, for everybody to be known by some elder. So often on a Sunday afternoon or Monday, my elders will, and I will exchange an email on so-and-so wasn't in church, or I chatted to so-and-so and he raised this issue. So good elder coordination is, is important then. And, you know, how many people can an elder competently pastor? I, I don't know, but I'm guessing probably 20, 25, once you get beyond that, it's, it probably starts to get more difficult. I certainly, you know, these megachurches strike me as... Well, I just, I've just never wanted to be in a megachurch. I've always wanted to be able to speak to my pastor. And I've always wanted to know people, and I've always wanted to be involved. And I've always wanted people to be able to notice if I'm not there so they can call me and tell me I should be there.